let me ask you, first of all, John, if if you watched the debate last night. I, I did. I must say I did not watch the uh, Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump alternative programming, but I, I uh, took took a few looks at uh, some some of the clips and, and some of the transcript this morning. And uh, it was it was uh, not a tough choice to watch the debate. And I, I'm, I'm convinced I didn't miss anything at all by not watching the Trump uh, interview. Well, they uh, uh, it was very clear Tucker has decided that Jeffrey Epstein was murdered. They did speak about that, and they spoke about President Trump uh, spoke about his leadership on water pressure. Uh, you know, th- those must have been two of the most exciting moments that, uh, that that occurred. I mean, it was Trump just reviving the golden oldies about how he was being picked on and uh, this is a witch hunt and so on and so forth, which which sounds a lot like what the entire 2024 campaign will be like if he gets the Republican nomination. Well, there was also a question about whether he expects that there will be civil war here in the United States. And neither uh, Trump nor Tucker ruled that out. And then uh, uh, Tucker asked this extraordinary question uh which we've played for people where he asked uh they've they've gone after you with impeachment they've gone after you with indictments uh do you think that next the democrats are going to try to have you killed and um yeah go ahead no i was going to say this this is part of the trump victimization campaign and and you know i'm doing this for you and they're after me because of you uh, and and to me, it's just one more example of how victimization has suddenly become the theme of the Republican Party. This, this is let's forget Ronald Reagan for a minute. This is not Jack Kemp's party. I don't remember Jack Kemp ever complaining he was a victim of anything. And it was hope and optimism, uh, mourning in America and, and that sort of thing that that characterized a successful Republican Party. It was the Democrats who complained about everything. And, and uh, Trump, Trump is turning us into Democrats. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so leaving that aside for a moment, there was sharp exchanges at the debate, which I'm sure you saw, uh, between uh, Vivek Ramaswamy on the one side and then Mike Pence and Nikki Haley on the other, concerning uh, America's policy in Ukraine. And, of course, there was lusty applause from the audience when uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was saying things like, why are we spending all this money defending the Ukrainian border when we won't defend our own border? What do you think is the most effective way to answer people like uh, Vivek Ramaswamy who want to uh, cut off American support for the Ukrainians? Well, you know, there there are many arguments uh, that could be made, and, and importantly, Joe Biden is not making them often enough or effectively enough. And I think that is a partial explanation uh, for the decline in American support for Ukraine, but specifically on this point about the border, which is a common refrain uh, among some Republican circles. It is a total non sequitur. Uh, I agree that our border policy is inadequate. But that doesn't excuse an inadequate policy in Ukraine. The notion that Ukraine is not strategically significant to the United States uh, is flatly wrong. Ron DeSantis has said it's a secondary or tertiary issue. That is not correct. Uh, It has been bedrock American foreign policy since 1945 that peace and stability in Europe are in America's vital national interest. That's why we created NATO, among other reasons. 
And what the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year did was not only threaten Ukraine, but imperiled NATO allies throughout Eastern and Central Europe and endangered other former parts of the Soviet Union, now independent, that are that are important to us as well. If we don't uh, rebuff this aggression by Russia in a convincing way by aiding the Ukrainians, not by fighting ourselves, by aiding the Ukrainians, it will give Russia victory in Ukraine, which will be destabilizing in Europe, It will encourage Russia to do this elsewhere, further destabilization. And perhaps worst of all, the lesson it will teach Beijing is that the U.S. won't stand up to aggression on the continent of Europe, let alone thousands of miles away across the Pacific. So these these are just the starting places of why this is important to America and why American leadership is so important, uh, not just for Ukraine, but for America. Well, this uh, you're echoing part of what uh, Ambassador uh, Nikki Haley said last night in in response to some of this conversation. Uh, what do you say, uh, John Bolton, to uh, those who claim that uh, Europe is simply not uh, taking its share of the burden? Well, I think there are parts of Europe that are definitely not taking their share of the burden. And it has been a consistent problem with uh, NATO allies for quite some time. And, and, and Trump deserves a measure of credit for trying to push for more of the European allies to meet the commitments they voluntarily made in 2014 to reach 2 percent of their GDP for defense spending by 2024. Now, Trump was pushing them because he was hoping they wouldn't make it and it would justify America withdrawing from NATO, which I believe he will do in a second Trump term. But for those who want to strengthen NATO, because, by the way, it strengthens the United States to have strong alliances, uh, it remains important to say we're not giving people a free ride. We're not doing this uh, in Ukraine or any of the other Uh, forward American positions around the world. We're not doing this as a favor for the allies. We're doing it because it benefits us. Uh, And believe me, nobody else is going to do it for us. And uh, the countries uh, of NATO that uh, are doing their share, uh, we will get to uh, because uh, the reports are that uh, particularly Germany has begun to step up with increased defense spending which is what they had committed to do. Uh, We will talk about more and uh, about U.S. foreign policy and what the death of Prigozhin means for Putin's future. Uh, We'll talk about that with uh, Ambassador John Bolton. His book, it's a scintillating bestseller, The Room Where It Happened. He's the former assistant to the president for national security affairs for the NSA. We will be right back uh, on The Michael Medved Show with John Bolton. The Michael Medved Show, all across America. I really enjoy your program. I listen to talk radio all day. You're definitely right up there, the cream of the crop. This is The Michael Medved Show.
what a pleasure to speak to Ambassador John Bolton, the former ambassador of the United States to the United Nations, former assistant to the president for national security affairs that was under President Trump, the author of the book, The Room Where It Happened, about his experience in the White House at a very crucial and decisive time. Uh, John, uh, when when you look at what is going on in Russia right now, the, the assumption is that with the apparent death of Prigozhin, first of all, do you believe the reports that he almost certainly has died? And secondly, you do you credit the assumption uh, that uh, the authorities in the Kremlin, uh, particularly Vladimir Putin, uh, may have had something to do with the death of the head of the Wagner group? Uh, your assumption? Yeah, I think uh, we can pretty well conclude that Prigozhin is dead. Putin has made a statement uh, referring to him in the past tense and uh, saying he'd done good things for the for the cause, but had made a few mistakes. And uh, I think, at least in Putin's mind, he, he knows all that he needs to know. Uh, and uh, while there's certainly huge gaps in our knowledge of exactly what happened, uh, I think the odds are overwhelmingly in, in favor of the proposition that Putin either ordered it directly or was not at all unhappy and subordinate took the initiative. We don't know exactly how. There are different theories. Uh, some uh, leaked from American intelligence sources that there was a bomb on Prigozhin's planes, others that perhaps he was shot down by an anti-aircraft missile uh, flying past Tver, northwest of Moscow. Uh, uh, you know, I'll let the experts debate that, but that plane certainly fell out of the sky quickly, and it had several other top Wagner Group officials on it, uh, along with Prigozhin, which indicates a real lapse of security on their part. So uh, it, it looks to me like a, like a old-style KGB hit job and uh, and very professionally done by people who do a lot of it. Does it reflect a uh, a solidification of power, or does it reflect a growing weakness and insecurity on the part of President Putin? Uh, again, with the caveat that there's much that we don't know, I think this does strengthen Putin's hand. Uh, the, the one question that we can't answer, at least I can't answer, is why did it take him so long to do it? And my guess is it's because Putin wanted to solidify... Uh, or increase his certainty that he had control over Wagner Group forces in the Middle East and North Africa, and particularly in Ukraine. Uh, we shouldn't forget that Wagner Group was a was a Putin idea. He put Prigozhin in charge of it. He funded it initially with Russian uh, uh, government money. Uh, it then became a successful entrepreneur out in the third world in, in uh, precious stones and a variety of other minerals, uh, and is now a kind of a huge mega empire. But Putin created it to give Russia military capability in those regions that was deniable, and that is still important to him. So I, I think he probably timed this in a way that he thought he had effective control over the Wagner Group. He doesn't want it to go away. He just wants to make sure he controls it. And I think in Russia we just have to acknowledge not everybody looks at these things the same way we do. Uh, that the people of Russia see this, that they know who did it, who ordered it, and to them it shows Putin's back in charge. 
In terms of uh, what that means for the fate of the war, uh, the uh, consensus seems to be that Ukraine has been making progress, but it's slow and painful and uh, bloody. Uh, your anticipation of what, say, the next six months to a year brings to the struggle in Ukraine? Yeah, if, if Ukrainian progress remains slow and, and, and not very significant, and I would say before we leave that, for one very good reason, which was American and NATO assistance to Ukraine uh, was slow and ineffective and uh, uh, doled out piecemeal and not in a strategic fashion, which gave the Russians time they needed to fortify their defensive positions in eastern and southern Ukraine. But if if we have effectively gridlock on the battlefield, let's say in 60 days, I am very worried that the Russians may say, look, this war has gone on long enough. Let's have a ceasefire in place and let's have negotiation, which if they can get a ceasefire, they will create an effective new Russia-Ukraine boundary along that line of control. They will count on uh, leaders in France and Germany who want to turn the page here and uh, find a way to go back to doing business as usual. And they may find friends in the White House uh, who don't want to go and do an election campaign uh, fighting a war that they themselves don't explain very well. And uh, what do they need to do to explain uh, the war better? Because, uh, again, it seems that the other party, the Republican Party, is the one that's divided particularly on the issue of the war in Ukraine and our support for the Ukrainians. Well, I think the failure to explain uh, how Ukraine ties in strategically with American national interest and to be very clear about it and why – uh, this aids the United States to help the Ukrainians is something people could understand and rally around. Uh, Defense Secretary Austin, uh, probably a year ago now, came as close as anybody in the administration to saying it when he said, right now, the Russians are feeding their army into a wood chipper. Uh, and they are they are destroying their capability strategically uh, 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 to cause trouble around the world. We, we are also, which is a good thing from the U.S. point of view, we are also getting battlefield testing of our advanced weapon systems. And every report we have is they are performing magnificently. Uh, uh, when we get the Abrams tanks uh, engaged, hopefully later this fall, as soon as possible, these tanks have been mainstays in our uh, combat arms for, for decades now, but they've been really advanced technologically in significant ways, not tested in battle since the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. This this is very important to find out how they do. Uh, all of these things at a cost of no lives of American soldiers, none on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, and, and that's something that's positive, going back to the strategic reasons we talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, but 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 that case is not being systematically made to the American people. And uh, obviously, the idea that um, uh, putting America first, which is something that has been a, a popular slogan, uh, doesn't mean forgetting uh, the rest of the world on which America's security, at least in part, uh, depends. Um, you. Uh, uh, 
I, I asked you off the air, but uh, you are not ready yet to make an endorsement for President of the United States because you believe that the uh, uh, this race may end up having some new participants. Well, I think there are people who are looking at whether to come in. I think the reality of the debate last night, I mean, we can go through each of the eight participants, is there were no outstanding stars. I think it's imperative to defeat Donald Trump from getting the Republican nomination. Imperative for the Republican Party, but for the country as well. John Bolton, uh, former assistant to President Trump for National Security Affairs, author of the best-selling book, the room where it happened. The room where it happened last night was the five serve arena. Where do we go from there? We'll be right back.